Today's episode of It's That Episode is sponsored by Audible.com, the leading provider of audio greatness. They have over 150,000 books and titles in their library. Uh, my guest today is Matthew Clickstein, who created the new book, Slimed, an oral history of Nickelodeon's golden age. If you go to audiblepodcast.com backslash Craig Rowan, C-R-A-I-G-R-O-W-I-N, you can get the book for free. And you can get a 30-day trial on me. So if you're at all interested in today's episode and you're like, oh, that sounds interesting. I want to hear more, but I don't want to pay a, a cent because I'm a cheapskate. That's fine. Who cares? Do it on me. Go to audiblepodcast.com backslash Craig Rowan. Um, how about this? What do you say we get to the episode? Well, it's that episode, not that episode, not that episode. It's that episode. It's that episode with Craig Rowan. Welcome to It's That Episode, the podcast where I, Craig Rowan, invite a guest over to my apartment. We watch any TV show they choose. We watch it. We talk about it. We talk about a bunch of other crap. Today, my guest is Matt Clickstein, who has written the new oral history book of Nickelodeon called Slimed. Uh, welcome, Matt. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me in your apartment. Uh, how do you like my apartment? It's really hot. I'm very sweaty, and it's very far away from where I live. But otherwise, uh, B+. Plus. So we're going, starting on a good, it's a good start. Definitely. Um, my, the guest is insulted by the heat. Yes. And, and I'm insulted that I only got a B plus. Yes. Um, so uh, welcome. You've written the new oral history of Nickelodeon. Allegedly, yeah. Um, allegedly meaning? Well, you know, writing the semiotics of that is kind of strange with an oral history because... I didn't really say what's actually in the book. I kind of edited it together, much uh, as the way a producer would with a documentary, perhaps. Um, so I always feel a little bit strange calling myself the author of Slimed, an oral history of Nickelodeon's Golden Age at your stores, available everywhere now and on Amazon for pre-order. Or if this is in the future, which it probably will be, you could probably already get it by now. Um, just because I feel more like I edited it together. Uh, or again, like produce it as a documentary. You so. are the curator of the oral history. Sure, curator. I like that. So word. you've done the work, though, to get together a lot, uh, a lot of interviews with people, yes. um, and uh, that must have been pretty exciting. It was exciting, and it was also extremely nerve wracking. I was pulling out my hair the entire time. Um, you know, I just I didn't really have the support or the resources that one would think one would uh, acquire in a project of this uh, substance. But um, uh, you know, I just forged ahead. I had no idea what I was doing. I had no idea how to put together an oral history. I had no idea uh, a lot of the legalities, a lot of the production needs. Uh, just you know, things as, as as simple you'd think as finding people to help me transcribe the interviews was a bit of a challenge, especially financially. Uh, and, um, you know, as I keep telling everybody, the big thing for this particular oral history of Nickelodeon was, though there are two other books that are kind of scholarly texts on the subject, literally one is a bunch of scholarly essays about Nickelodeon, the other is an extrapolation on one of the essays in that book, um, more for like media classes and whatnot. There really had never been a book like this put out before and one that tells the full story of Nickelodeon in one cohesive narrative. So it was as though I, ha I was doing a million piece puzzle uh, without having the picture. I was literally putting it together while I was working on it and I had very little amount of time I had very little amount of money to do it and it was extremely hard and and I'm an amazing person for having done it I'm great wow well we're all thankful for your thank hard you. work you should be thankful I thank uh, you for being thankful 
Um, so uh, why don't we talk about what episode uh, we chose to watch today? Uh, I chose to watch Hard Days. Well, originally I chose uh, Visit to Anthony, uh, the Ren and Simpy episode. But we can't find that. Um, I could only find that online in like Dutch, Spanish. <laughs> See, and, watching it in Dutch would be awesome. Um, it was on Netflix a while back, uh, Ren and Stimpy, but for some reason they took it off. So, yeah, well, that's unfortunately, it's a footnote. This could have been the episode where we watched we it. We could have done Visit to Anthony. Um, uh, yeah, no, instead I chose Hard Day's Pete uh, from The Adventures of Pete and Pete. Uh, perhaps one of the more cliche episodes, not in the episode is cliche, just it's cliche that it's a favorite because I think it's a favorite, if not the favorite of many of us uh, Nickelodeon kids um, and even a lot of the execs and whatnot. It's just a very special episode. Uh, You have Danny Tamborelli, Little Pete, uh, playing music in the episode. This would actually go on to instill in him, the actor Danny Tamborelli, uh, a lust for music for the rest of his life. He's now part of a band called Jounce. He uh, does a lot of touring and such and he told me and he's told other people in interviews this is directly related to his playing uh music in this episode hard days pete so if you're a fan of Dan- danny tamborelli's music career you have this to thank oh definitely yeah um and um no you know you, you actually have uh, mark mulcahy and some of the guys from polaris uh who were originally part of something called uh, miracle legion which was an indie band in the uh, late 80s early 90s uh, actually again playing in the episode acting i guess sort of in the episode. Uh, Mark Mulcahy actually had some funny things to tell me about uh, how he was able to do that and Danny being kind of his uh, acting coach. We can maybe talk about that later. Uh, but no, it's just it's a fun episode. It's a real feel-good episode. Um, and there's something very special. And maybe I'm just now realizing extremely apropos and that Danny or little Pete feels this ineffable connection to this one particular song that he has to try to hunt down so much so that he can't find it that he actually has to create something of his own own uh, his own band and learn music and everything and get his friends together and do it in order to recreate the song that's in his head and i think that's very much what a lot of us uh you craig maybe even and other people who do podcasts like this or tv shows or whatever it is are doing in trying to kind of recreate those feelings that we had of nostalgia from you know tv shows movies books and things of that nature that we loved as kids they're gone now they're ephemera you know we have some of it online and that kind of thing but you know let's make our own things about these things and that's what we're doing right here. So, right, and the, the, as you said, this is one of the more, more uh, memorable or talked about episodes. I've seen this episode before. I assume I saw it when I was a kid, and then I've revisited it since then. Uh, and it's definitely yes, very. You feel that it's sort of. How would you describe P and P to somebody who hasn't seen it? Because I feel like there's a, a feeling in this show. Uh, that doesn't really exist in a lot of children's shows. So, like, if if somebody was like, oh, I've never heard of that show, what would be the way that you'd sort of put it to them to get them intrigued? Gosh, I mean, the word that comes to mind is uh, somewhat of an abstruse one, but it's how I always describe it, which is elegiac. Um, and uh, it's sort of nostalgic, but it's more of a, you know, like, elegy. It's more of a feeling of maybe being sullen or somber at the lost uh, youth or lost sense of innocence. Um, and that's kind of how I feel. That might be more of a downer version of it. I also had a very uh, sort of downer morning, so maybe I'm just feeling that way right now. Uh, I'm hoping this episode will pick me up and we'll find out afterwards maybe, have a little narrative to this particular episode of the show. But, um, I, uh, you know, mystifying also comes to mind. It's got to be something more than just nostalgic or surreal um, or wondrous. 
these are words that a lot of people use with that show, but I think it's more powerful than that. I think that there is a, a darkness, a certain sense of gravity, a certain sense of it being sullen. The reality that's kind of pounded into us, this sort of almost Raymond Car- you know, Carver-type reality, um, you know, Tobias Wolf or something, the new realist, that, that whole branch of literature, I think really comes into play in all the episodes of Pete and Pete. Just the way the characters look, the way they act, they always have this kind of sense of being almost phlegmatic. And why? I think they're a little bit damaged. They're a little bit hurt. They're a little bit just kind of given up a little bit in a way on, on like feeling things. So they're just sort of floating through life in a very zen-like way that uh, in the end brings them a certain sense of equanimity. And you know they have a, a wonder about everything, very much like the way the original Peter Pan was in the Peter Pan book. Um, he kind of was you know, just lost in his own head and didn't really feel a real connection to other people, um, but did all these amazing things for other people just because he was so fascinated by everything. So if you've never seen the show ever, that's what the show is like. Right, exactly. Um, and I, I would add to that, yeah, it's one of those shows that sort of, it's not a realistic account of what childhood is like because it's so absurdist, but it gets the feel of childhood and sort of that, uh, the world of how you sort of see things as a child. Well, I would actually disagree largely with that. Um, in fact, Will McRobb and Chris Viscardi brought this up, and I didn't really think about it um, until they talked about it. It seems like that show is not based in reality, but it's actually probably one of the most based in reality shows about television or anything about uh, I'm sorry about childhood or anything about childhood um, that's maybe ever been committed to uh, any kind of art form because um, as they pointed out what makes Pete and Pete really special for those who've never seen or heard of it which is probably not possible especially if you're listening to this show but um, is that Every episode is drastically focused on the minutiae of reality. Each episode is about a telephone booth that keeps ringing and no one's picking it up. Or who, um, you know, who's the inspector of your underwear. Um, or uh, you know, a, a history test that you have in 15 minutes, even though Wonder Years kind of did a similar sort of episode. Um, you know, these are not episodes of this, – this is not a series about, oh, I lost my tooth. Um, or there's a bully at school, even though we had Endless Mike, the villain in this in this series. They were so steeped in reality that it almost made it absurd. It's actually – it's less surreal and more what Bunuel and some of the other surrealists would call objects of multiple use, which is something that could exist in real life but is so weird to see it, it almost seems surreal. The, the uh, metaphor they use is like a dog with like um, a, a wagon train kind of – or like a, like a wagon behind it, like uh, hooked up to it. You normally don't see that. But it's something that you could see and that could happen. But if you saw it, you'd be like, wow, that's sort of dreamlike. And that's very much what Pete and Pete's like. It's like it puts you in this sort of hypnagogic state of everything kind of seems like a dream. But when you think about it, it's actually quite steeped in reality. You're right. I was wrong. Yeah, don't you forget it. So um, I was just schooled. Um, Hoo-ha! And uh, with that excitement going forward, we're going to check out the episode A Hard Day's Pete Woo. Uh, uh, from Pete and Pete. And this was from the first season, I believe. Is that this correct? This was from the first season. This was actually the last episode of the first season, 1994. All right. So uh, let's check it out. My name is Miss Fingerwood. I'm your math teacher. And I just called to let you know that if you're late for my class again, the odds of your passing will increase to a 450 to 1 ratio. Hmm. <laughs> That's about all the time we've got. Thanks for picking Scab Talk, Mel. If a 10-year-old boy has to ride his bicycle 1.3 miles to school at a top speed of 15.4 miles per hour, how can you make it in four and a half minutes? Hmm? Sure. 
If he had had just an extra two minutes to get to school, none of what happened would have happened. But I guess fate has a way of putting you in the right place at just the right time. Toward school, a strange new feeling raced through him, and suddenly it hit him. It wasn't supposed to happen. He wasn't supposed to care. But as the feeling blasted through his heart, he knew nothing could ever be the same. He had a favorite song, a song he could call his own. So we just finished uh, Hard Days, Pete. Woo. When was the last time you watched that episode? Um, probably like maybe four years ago or so when the DVDs uh, first came out, um, I had some, I was living in LA and I had a roommate in Hollywood I was living with and we got them all and we were watching them over and over and over again. It was pretty much a regular part of our routine along with, uh, watching old Bob Ross DVDs that we were able to get online and, uh, Twilight Zone. Bob Ross and Pete and Pete definitely go hand in hand. Yeah, yeah. that sort of creates a mood. So why don't we uh, why don't we give sort of just a basic summary of the episode uh, for the audience? Um, so it basically starts with uh, younger Pete uh, at his uh, homemade radio station, Wart. Yep, Wart Radio. Wart Radio. He is uh, sort of his show is basically talking about the conspiracy, the adult conspiracy. It's yeah, a, and, and other things too, scabs and scabs. Um, things of that nature, the scatological, but no music, no music allowed. No music. It's a no music allowed radio station. It's a talk radio run by Little Pete. True. And uh, he gets calls in sometimes for music, but that's not part of his thing. No, he's not about music or playing music on his shows, just talking until one faithful day he runs afoul of a band playing in a garage and they're playing a certain song that gets stuck in his head to the point where it's so indulgable that he has to recreate it. So, yeah, he spends the rest of the episode sort of trying to remember the song. He goes back to the house uh, where the band is playing it. There's nobody there. Uh, he can only remember a portion of the song, and he basically gets a guitar, uh, goes in his garage, and starts trying to play it, and he, and he compiles a band. He does. Uh, the band is engendered and involves uh, Miss Fingerwood, played by Sid Straw. And Marshall Crenshaw, who's the meter man in this episode and also a musician in his own right. He was Buddy Holly in La Bamba, among other things. Uh, and Aaron Schwartz on drums is Clem. We'll remember him as uh, Gerald Garner from Heavyweights and the Mighty, uh, the Mighty Ducks franchise. Uh, and together they all try to recreate the song. And, uh, and they can't. They can only create part of the song. And uh, and they're they're raising the the uh, electricity bill in the house. The parents are getting upset, and uh, to raise money, they basically start taking requests. And yeah, gaming. they have a they have a kind of telethon because Dad, played by Hardy Rawls, 
uh, basically, regrettably, he's not really that upset. He he sort of feels bad about this. He's remorseful that he simply can't pay the $700 a month uh, electric bill to keep the band playing because they felt that if they could keep playing the same riff, the one riff that, that Little Pete has in his head over and over again enough times, according to Miss Fingerwood's, the math, te- the math teacher's uh, estimations, they would the rest of the song would suddenly come out of his head like an amnesiac. Um, regaining his or her memory, um, but it's just going to cost too much, so they have to have a telethon. Telethon that is instigated by Big Pete requesting a song for five dollars, and Little Pete gets the notion of yes, let me just do a telethon. And uh, they raise the money, but he still feels a deep sadness when he he realizes he still can't remember the song. He can only remember one note, and in the end, he goes back to the spot, uh, the garage where he first heard the song, starts playing, and he just sort of has this epiphany, remembers the song, and it's a happy ending. Yep. I'd say that's the basic summary of the episode. Indeed. But it's so much more rich with details. And and one thing that you mentioned while we were watching was uh, Marshall Crenshaw. Is that his name? Who played that? Yeah. Marshall Me- Crenshaw plays the meter man and also uh, is in the band. And, yeah, the, the big secret there, the kind of cool thing is... One of the ways that they were able to get some of these people to be on the show, it was... It was uh, twofold, really. Catherine Diekman, who is kind of one of the creators and directed most of the episodes, she was really uh, enmeshed in the downtown Manhattan scene and knew a lot of those people. Um, she actually had Michael Stipe sleeping on her couch for a while, and she directed The Stand and Shiny Happy B- People music video. That's how she got uh, Michael Stipe in and you know Richard Edson and David Johansson. She was, she was kind of friendly with a lot of these people. Um, and... Uh, she knew Sid Straw and brought Sid Straw in, who's also a solo musician, a musician in her own right. But because Sid was uh, such a part of the scene, uh, they asked her if you can grab someone for this band, the blowholes that they were going to have on the show. And she originally was going to have Joey Ramone do it. Um, but unfortunately, he and his band, whose name I can't really remember right now, they were leaving for Europe the next day, so Joey couldn't do it. I but assume he almost it did. wasn't the Ramones, because that would be weird if you couldn't remember that. Oh, that's right. The Ramones. Joey Ramone, right. Um, so, uh, yeah, it would have been Joey Ramone of uh, the Ramones. The Ramones. And, uh, but instead, he couldn't make it, so Marshall Crenshaw did it instead. And if I remember correctly, I think Marshall also actually wrote the songs that they play in the episode. Throughout the episode, the songs that they're playing are sort of pastiches of other songs. Marmalade Cream. Marmalade Cream and Surf Bun, Surf Fun, and and things of that nature. I think Marshall actually wrote the songs, if I remember correctly. Yeah, they're pretty enjoyable tunes. And they're also, I'd say, like not your regular kids music that you'd assume would be in a show. They're a little more harder rock, you know, more of the time. Than- yeah, they have kind of a rockabilly feel. I, I know that uh, Marshall for, you know, did a lot with Robert Gordon, who's kind of a neo-rockabilly guy uh, in sort of like the uh, late 70s, early 80s. Um, and, uh, you know, he's played with people like Frank Black. Uh, and uh, so he definitely has kind of a, a retro sound that um, infused that particular episode. And a lot of the episodes, a lot of the music has um, that kind of sense. Because Mulcahy, Mark Mulcahy of Polaris, which is also part of the band in the in the, um, in the uh, order. Is, they're the band originally that's playing the song that gets into Pete's head. Um, and also they do the theme song, a lot of the other music for the show. Mark Mulcahy um, has kind of a retro type of sound himself also. Yeah, and it's uh, it's sort of a cool thing that runs through Pete and Pete as a whole is definitely uh, interesting cameos. Like I remember Iggy Pops in an episode. You Iggy mentioned. Pops in a couple episodes, actually. Right. I mean, he's, he's kind of a regular, as was Steve Buscemi. 
Um, and as you mentioned while we were watching, Janine Garofalo as well. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of, uh, I feel like this show not only was cool for kids, but sort of had a street cred as well, I'd assume. Uh, I was only like nine when it was out, but it, it definitely felt like it got, as you mentioned, this sort of scene involved in it. Yeah, much of that, again, was due to Catherine Diekman. She just happened to be part of that world. Uh, what a lot of people – it's funny. When you realize it, it makes a lot more sense. But uh, we have to remember that even though the show was shot in New Jersey, um, the people who were making it and Nickelodeon's office at the time, um, you know, it was all in New York. And this is – um, you know, mid eighties to early eighties in New York. And uh, there was a lot going on there with the comedy scene and with the indie rock scene and the alternative scene and, you know, sort of what was going on with sort of punk and uh, hardcore and that sort of thing. And you had all these young filmmakers and artists in their early twenties and early thirties who there was really only a few jobs available for them to start off with, which was Sesame street, Saturday night live, MTV and Nickelodeon. And a lot of them worked at all of them at the same time just to pay the bills. So you had really a lot of crossbreeding going on and a lot of miscegenation uh, creatively between people who were doing stuff kind of more for adults on one side, but then they do stuff for kids on the other. But really, they brought in the same tone and sensibility. They just left out maybe the swearing or, you know, uh, that kind of thing. So, um, you know, they were able to bring in this downtown Manhattan sensibility into this children's show. That's a lot of what Pete and Pete really was. Yeah. And how do you like uh, so going back to this episode aired in 1994, the last episode of the first season how would this compare in general to like the other things that were on nickelodeon at the time you know it's always a hard question for me to answer because personally i've become really friendly with a lot of the people who were involved in many of these series including the show creators and producers hosts and whatnot from some of the other shows um and both you know i don't want to make any of them feel bad but also i've learned to respect some of the shows a little bit more than i might have when i was younger just knowing a lot more about what was going on behind the scenes and it's pretty incredible what they had to do to make the shows happen um and that's just how i am the context sometimes makes me like something thing a lot better um but um you know i i I guess i'll say i've said before i think pete and pete was something special at the network and and i'll say this um the other people that i spoke to involved nickelodeon i spoke to 250 people um pete and pete and ren and stimpy probably came up the most double dare comes up a lot too um but pete and pete and ren and stimpy was probably the two shows that even the other people at nickelodeon really liked a lot and thought was something really special there were people who absolutely hated ren and stimpy they hated it they thought it was evil they thought it was terrible they thought it was disgusting they didn't get it but there were so many other people who loved it and loved it they were like i can't believe we were on the same network with ren and stimpy that i would say those probably were the two shows that kind of stood out but many of the other shows like double dare and you can't do that television and salute your shorts were also really special in their own way and we're so different from each other and from pete and pete that i think that's why the network as a whole at this time and why i could um you know bestow upon it the title of golden age is because every show was not just great they were all very different from each other totally diverse um, even the game shows like Wild and Crazy Kids and Double Dare and Legend of the Hidden Temple maybe uh, and Nick Arcade were totally completely different from each other in every possible way. Aside from the fact they happen to be game shows, kind of. Um, so I think Pete and Pete stood out on top of the mountain, but with very close seconds, thirds, fourths all sorted together, creating this acro crag, if you will, of quality. I will. Yeah. Um, Mo. Will you? Mo, is that? Mo, Mo. Uh, um, so, 
So now let's go back a little bit. This is your favorite show, or looking back you, uh, from the I would say, day. yeah, I, I, always, I always get fumbled Even about this. Even if not, it's one of your Keen most... Keen one of my favorite, if not my favorite. So yeah. let's go back a little bit. When you were a kid, what was your, what was your television watching routine? Because I know when I was a kid... Uh, watching Nickelodeon was sort of par for course. One of the channels I'd watch, I'd also mix it up. And no offense to uh, Nickelodeon, I'd also watch Disney Afternoon. Uh-huh. Sure. But those were sort of the things that I remember, I assume were similar in age, that yeah. that these shows are important to us. So what was your sort of routine back then for what shows you'd watch or what your afternoons looked like watching TV? Um, I did watch some Disney, um, and you know, Disney had some cool stuff on there too at a point, uh, adventures in wonderland was really fun, uh, under the umbrella tree. I liked quite a lot. Some of the old, uh, Disney cartoons were great. Um, but those, those are the two that come to mind. A Dumbo circus was neat. Um, you know, uh, are, the, now are, the, are these, uh, are these made for TV movie type things? No, or? they were they were they were real TV. I'm surprised. I've actually talked to a couple people. No one remembers Adventures in Wonderland, and it was all around the same time. I mean, it had Nell Carter on it. It was a live action Alice in Wonderland show. And for my money, I'd have to see it again. But for my money, it, it's the best. Uh, committing of the, that text to the screen that has yet been done, aside from Jan Schwankmeyer's Alice, which was sort of an impressionistic uh, version of, which is scary and weird and not the really The Czech take on Right, uh, yeah. Uh, it's Alice a bit Marvel. different. Um, there was also uh, like a made-for-TV thing in England that was done, I think, in the late 60s um, with uh, Peter Sellers, um, where it was kind of a realistic version of Alice in Wonderland. Like It was almost like Alice, the girl was walking around her estate and was seeing all these actual it was almost more like wizard of oz where she was seeing everyone sort of as these characters it was done in a very strange weird way i actually reviewed it for something years ago and it was a bit of a trip um but anyway no i I liked i like adventures in wonderland i like under the umbrella tree i did watch uh some of the you know saturday morning cartoons like beetlejuice and ghostbusters uh, I never really got into Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I, you know, admittedly, I was raised by a single mom. I was kind of a, a feet uh, young boy. I didn't really watch a lot of the boy shows. I never got into Transformers. I never got into Mask. I never got into G.I. Joe at all. I never really got into Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Um, I, I would watch some Rainbow Bright and My Little Pony and such, but that was like much, much earlier on. I was like a, just a really little kid when gender wasn't even an issue anymore. But I always kind of felt a little weird that when I got a little older, my friends were all in all these army shows and things and shows about like like things attacking each other and stuff. And I never got into it. Like movies too, like Toy Soldiers, the movie, or Memphis Belle. I remember I had all these friends that really got into it. And uh, it just wasn't for me, although I was really into Terminator. My, I, my dad got it for me for my sixth birthday. So at least I got the sense of destruction and death that goes with being a young man with that film. So I have to thank James Cameron for with that. With the oncoming of the robot apocalypse. Yeah, it actually, funnily enough, if it had any influence on, on me at all, um, it, uh, aside from teaching me a lot of new words, uh, it made me really into robots. I got really obsessed with robots off of Terminator. And then I got really into short circuit and Robocop also, although Robocop's really not for children, uh, at all, probably more so than Terminator. I mean, that is just tits and ass and blood and guts, but it's a fantastic, beautiful film. Um, that's all about philosophy and the soul and memory and what is it to be human, but also has tits and ass and blood and guts. So maybe not for kids, but I did watch it a lot as a kid. Philosophy and boobs go together like, uh, good steak and a nice wine yeah it's very kierkegaard right there 
Um, so, so, but you, you know, you wrote this book about uh, Nickelodeon specifically. So was yeah. was Nickelodeon? I mean, let's go back. So Pete and Pete. Uh, things like Are You Afraid of the Dark? You can't do that on television. Uh, Slit your shorts. Slit hey, your shorts. dude. Wild and crazy kids. Um, Double Dare, of course. Um, Finders Flinders explains it all. Finders keepers. Not finders keepers. Uh, you know the few uh, the few times it came up, and I talked. There were there were some things that never really came up, and all the people I talked to, Linda Ellerby, never came up. Um, and I'm not just saying that because she kind of dicked me around a little bit with setting up an interview. Um, who now who remind me who that she is. was exactly she, well, she was Nick news. I think that still goes on to this day. Look, she seemed very nice, but she, everyone, I don't know. She kind of, she kind of gave me the runaround and so did her people. And it kind of upset me a little bit, but even on top of that, in all fairness, whether she had or not, um, no one brought her up once at all. Um, and I was speaking to all the executives and everything. Um, so that never came up. Finders keeper, finders keepers only came up a few times. And when it did with just the most amount of, um, just people were absolutely odious about it. Like they just didn't like it at all. They thought it was a big mess. Same with, uh, what would you do? Uh, Mark Summers and Robin, uh, called it, um, why are we doing this? Um, I watched that show. I'll yeah, admit no, it. And you know, what's funny I'll is admit it. people t- tell me about like, Oh, finders keepers or what would you do? And I didn't watch it as a kid and people I talked to who made it, worked on it, whatever. They didn't like it. Um, so I don't know. That was, that was really, that was also a little bit later on finders keepers. And what would you do is really them trying to, uh, you know, get lightning in a bottle again. Right. And they just couldn't do it. Double dare was such a profusion of everything all at once. And you can read all about it in my book, slimed at stores now. Um, Amazon.com. Yeah. Whether, I don't even know if this is the future yet or not, but, um, this is the present. This is the present, yeah. Okay, so it's like a Simpsons episode. Um, uh, why do you keep saying the future? But no, I. Um, uh, yeah, Double Dare was something really special. It had so many elements that came together in a way that just couldn't happen again and didn't. I mean, it didn't. Um, and a lot of it was Mark Summers. Uh, I'm not just saying that because he's one of my good friends these days. Um, but uh, he has such an infectious energy that I think that was the core of the show. Along with, again, the slime and the way that they set up the show and the structure of the show. Originally, Double Dare was going to um, be like they were going to keep everything for the end, like the obstacle course and the physical challenges and such. And when they first showed it to some test audiences, a lot of the kids were saying, um, you know, I like the, the mess. I don't really like the questions, but they really wanted to have the questions on there. So what they, the way they fixed it was they said, well, why don't we combine the physical challenges with the questions so that you kind of have to keep watching. So if you want to watch the mess, if you want to watch the slime, you have to kind of watch the whole episode. You can't just sort of keep like wait till the end and like flip back to it for the last 10 minutes. And that's kind of smart. That's kind of them figuring out like how to create the structure of the show so that six-year-olds or nine-year-olds will sit there and watch the entire episode without like sort of rolling their eyes because while you're watching the questions, which were also kind of funny and silly and Mark's being fun, but you're kind of, there's this tension of waiting for like, Oh man, are they going to screw up? We're going to get to watch them. Like, you know, someone's going to throw an egg at their head. So that was very intelligent. And there was just so much stuff. Plus the, the, the dynamism of, um, Mark, Harvey, and Robin was also so fun to watch um, that, you know, just you didn't have the same thing. I mean, who hosted Finders Keepers? Does anybody remember? Even Legends of the Hidden Temple. I mean, Kirk Fogg was fun and everything, but I'm sure not as many people would remember Kirk's name even as much as Mark Summers or even maybe Phil Moore from Nick Arcade. Sure. 
You you just laid it down. Um, uh. Now, uh, like thinking about the shows that are sort of um, more iconic or standalone, Pete and mm-hmm. Pete, uh, as you just said, Double Dare. And mm-hmm. what I think is cool about Nickelodeon or why I think that those shows fit in with sort of the Nickelodeon aesthetic. So what I also remember about Nickelodeon was that they'd have these cool, like, cartoon shorts in between things. Like, you can't do that on television. They'd have these, like, just little weird things. And I think MTV was doing it at the time as well. And There's it's a really good reason for that. And it's funny. I'm so, I, And I just brought this up on a show I did a couple days ago. I'm so – I guess I can't be surprised anymore. Every single interview I do brings this up. They bring up this specific thing. They talk about, yeah, I saw it on MTV also. First of all, there's a very good reason why you saw it on MTV also and why they kind of seem the same is the same people doing it. Well, it's Viacom there. No, 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 no. Literally the same people doing ah. it. Fred Seibert and Alan Goodman who branded MTV and created the logo of MTV and helped to create and develop the riff even. No, 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 no. Also brought in and branded uh, Nickelodeon. So they were the ones who really came up how to do the bu- the animated bumpers and whatnot. They didn't physically make them themselves. There was people like animators like Joey Album and George Evelyn. Um, but uh, And just in case anyone's wondering, we're talking here really about kind of like the Nick, like the dinos and the sneakers and the doo-wop, like, you know, doo-ba-ba-ba-boo, this is my Nick, doo-ba-doo. And the, I remember you know, a specific one. It went, yeah. I'd load it, it'll let Nick. Yeah, Jody or something like that. Right. And I was it was physically made by again people like George Evelyn and Joey Album, um, who would go on and try to create their own Nicktoons. There were actually originally eight Nicktoons, but then they cut it down to three after the pilots because they only had enough money for three. Um, and for some other reasons. But um, no, those bumpers were something very revolutionary, and it came from the idea and the concept behind Alan Goodman and Fred Seibert and a few other people, but mainly those guys who said, rather than bringing people in to watch these particular shows, let's bring these people in to watch this particular network. And this is something that they're bringing from the world of radio and magazine that hadn't really been done in television. We take it for granted now. But even when I was a kid, I remember watching and I had some understanding of the way advertising worked. And remember as a kid, as you might have too, why are they advertising for themselves? I never got that. I was like, why are the commercials for Nickelodeon? Like, I don't understand. And the reason why was because it linked everything together. It made you keep watching Nickelodeon. It made Nickelodeon a destination point for you. It made it so that you would watch Nickelodeon, not just watching Hey Dude and Pete and Pete, you are watching Nickelodeon. And again, that was something that comes from the magazine and radio world that really hadn't been done before in television until Fred and Alan came in and did it with MTV and did it with Nickelodeon. Um, and now that's de rigueur. I mean, that's that's how it's done. Um, so that's why those animated bumpers were done. And, and frankly, the reason they were so cool is because the people working on them are great. And even the ones outside of Joey and George, like even outside of the um, animated ones, were done by Scott Webb's department the on-air uh, pr- uh, promotions department. And they were doing a lot of the stuff like repurposing old like Lassie and like Mr. Ed and doing like little raps and things with them and having like talking heads and whatnot. And a lot of the people who made those who worked in the on-air promotions department would go on to create series for Nickelodeon, including bringing it back, Will McRobb and Chris Viscardi, who started off in that department. Wow. So, the, yeah, the, so those two guys who started, the, uh, I, as I mentioned to you while we were watching, went to see the, I guess it was a Pete and Pete reunion a couple a year or two ago, and they were talking about sort of their beginnings as doing um, doing bumpers and stuff, and mm-hmm. I think I they created Inside Out Boy, was that his name? 
Yep. Yeah, that was mainly, from what I understand, I don't think Chris was really that involved in it, um, but it was definitely Will McRobb and Scott Webb who kind of ran the department, although it's been, it's been a little muddled whether Debbie B.C. was an executive over there, was actually the director of the department or not. Basically, Scott ran it, um, from really what I understand. But, um, and uh, yeah, Will, that was Will and Scott. I don't know how much Chris was involved. Uh, not to not to uh, 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 denigrate Chris's contribution, but from what I understood from talking with both of them and everyone else at Nick, Will was kind of the um, tray to Chris's Matt as far as like the South Park duo is concerned. Like they always work together. They still work together to this day. But I think, and probably Chris would say this too if he didn't, I think Will was like just a little bit ahead. Um, Will, Will was also tapped as a story editor on all the Nicktoons and Chris was not. Um, there was only one other person at that time who was as well, which was Mitchell Kriegman from Clarissa Explains It All. He created Clarissa. Um, and he was pretty quickly fired from the job or replaced because he just um, didn't get along with some of the other cr- show creators. But Will did. And Will was the story editor on Ren and Stimpy, uh, Rugrats, I think, and Doug. And um, yeah, Will, Will had that cachet there at the network. A lot of people refer to him as the smartest guy in the room. That's actually how I talk about him in the book because everyone said that about him. Um, people would even say things to me like, well, it's not like that idea came from some genius like Will McRobb or something. Like other people I talked about, something completely different. Will's name would just get bandied about like, well, it's not like it was a Will McRobb thing. You know, like he was just like the top of the top. He's the go-to good He guy. was like the go-to guy, yeah. So he actually kind of like forced his way into Nickelodeon too in a really cool way. He was working at Goldman Sachs for a while awesome. and would kind of pop into Nickelodeon and just almost begging to do anything there. We just do some little freelance work here or there and just, you know, hung around enough where they finally brought him on board. And he claims that part of the reason why he has this legacy there, his words, um, is because in the beginning he was always dressed in these like Wall Street suits because he was kind of over at Nick during his lunch hour from Goldman Sachs. P.S. What he was doing at Goldman Sachs was not like American Psycho style. He was still doing kind of creative stuff. Like he was helping them do like industrial videos and things like that. So it wasn't like he was a trader on the floor or anything like this. Um, I think that's what they do. Uh, I know there's some kind of financial. He was just an artist trying to get and with a day job who who put them yeah. together. And then he luckily found the outlet of Nickelodeon. Yeah, and luckily for us as well and for the people in Nickelodeon. Because Pete and Pete is such a singular entity for that time and before and after. I mean, I just – I really feel strongly and I have people that I get in big arguments about it with, including um, – the editor uh, for this website about you know whether there are shows now or that there have been shows afterwards that could compete with Pete and Pete, and I just I, I just don't think so. And I think the reason why is not just because of my personal feeling that I think it's an amazing show in every regard, the way it looks, the music, the acting, the costumes, the set design, the art, uh, the editing, uh, the fact that you're kind of watching these short little films, which just is not done anymore. Um, you know, like Wonder Years was probably another one where it's just we're not going to ever see something like that again. And it really comes down to two simple things, which is time and money. And time is money anyway. Um, you're just not going to see a series. Uh, in this day and age where they're going to put that kind of love and care and passion into every single shot, into every single moment, into every single song, into every single sound. I mean, I have stories of Catherine Diekman and some of the other people on the show, like Allison Finelli, who played Ellen, told me about this. Like, they knew about it. Catherine would sit there, like, just meticulously figuring out the perfect song. She'd be going through song or sound libraries uh, in the office, finding, like, a little 10-second sound or a three-second sound 
on. Uh, you know, and that's just, you can't do that anymore. You can't, I'm sorry. You can't, you're not allowed to, they won't allow it because you can't be on the clock that long. Um, and you know, there's just not the money for it anymore. And the people who are working on these series now, um, unlike at Pete and Peter, even some of these other shows, you know, they're, they're day players. They're directors that are brought in for an episode or two or maybe like five or six, and then they're out and they're on to the next one. At Nickelodeon at this time, at Pete and Pete, it was a family. It was like the same group of people who were all making every single episode for the most part. And so they really knew the show. They really understood the characters. They created them maybe. Um, and there's just not the time and money for that kind of development anymore with the series that are on now. Do you feel now that you're part of that family, now that you've talked to that many people? You know, other people brought that up, too. I I don't know. I'm just a hack interviewer. I'm somewhere in between. I've definitely become very, very close with a few people. Um, A couple of the actors have become very close with. Actually, what's funny is um, when I was in L.A., uh, when I went back to California to visit my family last year, uh, Trevor, or Tim, uh, as he used to be known, Trevor Eister, who played Sponge on Salute Your Shorts, the brainy uh, kid with the glasses, he actually came over to my mom's house where I was uh, staying for a couple days to visit um, so that he and I could go hiking, and we spent the day together hiking. And you know what's funny is after he came over, my mom, I know it was, it was when he came over. My mom actually thought he was an old friend of mine. Like she was trying to remember who he was and like even talking with him about it, like, like kind of, you know, in a nice way, like trying to get out of him who he was because she thought he was an old friend of mine. And I had to tell her afterwards, like, no, he was just on the show that you watched because she did watch it because back in those days, parents and adults and stoner college kids watched these shows too because you could watch them as well it's not like dora today or iCarly or whatever the hell's on disney or these other things where they're you know they're really just for kids and an adult would kind of be rolling their eyes watching it that's uh well i i would love that should be a video blog of you hiking with different uh we were different talking members it, of uh nickelodeon now i have to go back to this episode of yeah. uh pete and pete we talked about it. You said I was wrong about it being an absurd TV show. Uh, but come on. We've got uh, the mom has uh, scans the airwaves with a metal plate in her head. Uh, he, uh, Little Pete has a inny bell- an Audi belly button until he uses feedback on it, and then it's an inny belly button. Uh, Artie, uh, the, most, uh, the strongest man in the world, is uh, affected by the whammy bar where he can basically, he's paralyzed because of it. So I'm not wrong. Isn't it a little bit absurd? No, it's not absurd because, um, as I said, it's it's objects of multiple use. Do you, do you know for sure that people can't pick up radio waves off of their the metal plate in their head? Has that really never happened before? Or maybe there's just not a record of it? No, but it's, it? it's a heightening of it to an extent that... Or the belly button. Maybe that has happened before. We just haven't heard it. And, the, you know, um, already the strongest man in the world is a really fascinating one. How much, because even Toby Huss, who created that character before he was actually on Pete and Pete, um, Artie the Strongest Man in the World was kind of a performance art piece that Toby Huss would do, sometimes on the street. Uh, He was kind of like this Andy Kaufman type of guy. Um, He did it in theaters. um, And originally, the character was actually much darker. And there's still a semblance of that on the show, especially in some of the latter episodes and and even the one where he leaves, basically, where how much of it is in his head? And how much of it is in Little Pete's head? The original Art of the Strongest Man in the World does actually... He's, he's an insane asylum guy. He's knocking people out off with a, with a broom handle, trying to get them to back away, and telling everyone he's the strongest man in the world. So how much of that actually is happening, or how much of it is so 
real, that it's, we're just seeing the reality in his head or the reality in little Pete's head, you can't really say it's very ambiguous. But then it would be fantasy if we, if we aren't really seeing it, if we're seeing no, we're, inside we're of seeing his head. The, we're seeing the reality of the perception of little Pete and Artie the strongest man in the world. I'm, I stand corrected again. Yeah. Uh, actually, um, when at the uh, reunion, um, what's the guy's name who does Artie? Uh, Toby Huss. Toby Huss. He, was, uh, he talked about that. It was really interesting that he did create that character beforehand. And he's definitely, judging by him, his performance or his talking during that, he's definitely a ball <laughs> a of energy. Like and yeah. I would not be surprised if some of that character comes just from, I mean, it's him. You know, it, in a way, it, it is him. Yeah, the other, the other actors in the show always brought that up. I mean, it was the kind of thing where um, Will and Chris, who were writing most of the episodes, um, I think they wrote all the episodes, actually, um, they, they, they just they couldn't even come up with um, Artie's lines by, you know, at a point. They just were like, Toby does something here because you just can't write that way. And really quick, too, just, just to go back on this really fast because I feel like I need to because I think that was a little bit of a sardonic um, concession there, <laughs> um, is uh, Philip K. Dick, William Burroughs, Hunter S. Thompson – and um, Vincent Van Gogh, how real is their artwork? I mean, I'm if not you, saying that it's not real. I know, but it's, not, it's, it's, it's the reality that they saw. Vincent Van Gogh and, and was being poisoned say, by absinthe, and so he created these images that might look a little strange to us or surreal or absurd to us, but they are reality to him. Just as like if you read Philip K. Dick's like letters, or if you read about his life, he was he didn't have that much of an imagination. You almost feel like he was a journalist who was just writing what he saw and felt and thought. He just saw and felt and thought such a weird crazy world that he was writing the reality of it in a way that it came out as like you know uh androids uh worrying about whether they're human or not well then i then i'd say absurd absurd in uh (laughs) compared to the status quo (laughs) i feel like hunter s thompson had an absurd life there we go compared to the status quo i like that and pete and pete is absurd compared to the status quo of most television shows you know what yeah you got you got your b plus back sir my I'll apartment's give it back to a B plus. My uh, my uh, debate on the the absurdism of the the absurdist nature of the show is B plus. Excellent um, interview. B minus. No, we can't say yet. It's not done yet. Come on, you've read Don Quixote. I'm going to tank this by the end. No, no, uh, purposely. So you can't, you can't have a biography until the person dies. Um, we're both dying at the end of this episode. So. Um, looking at this episode particularly, now you haven't watched this in four years. You watched this binge. I might have. It's hard to say. I know because I, we were watching a bunch of them when it came out on DVD. And since then, I've moved around a lot to the effect of I haven't really had a TV or anything. And as you found, it's not the easiest thing in the world to find it online. But I feel like I have seen it like at friends' houses or whatever since then. Like It's very possible I've seen it more recently than that. But let's just say for shits and giggles, like the last time I've seen this is in four years. Sure. So um, how does this hold up compared to both what you thought maybe four years ago and as a child, if you indeed did, indeed did see this episode as, as a kid? I did see it as a kid. Um, I'm pretty sure I saw all the episodes as a kid. Um, I don't know. Some of it was better than I remembered it being. There was definitely parts where I laughed out loud. I'd forgotten things. And even parts that I knew were coming, I still laughed just because the acting is so amazing. The timing is great. The editing, the pacing, that's a lot of the humor in the show. It's, it's great because for anyone, again, who's not seen it before, which I doubt is possible, 
Um, they don't. It's one of those things where they don't really tell jokes. It's just much of it's the expressions of the characters, or the, again the timing, the editing. It all comes together so well. It's sort of what I was talking about before. It's everything um, that made it really funny. There were moments where I laughed out loud, but then also I don't know. Maybe possibly because we we're watching it sort of off of YouTube. Kind of, it didn't look quite as cool as I remembered it looking um, when I just kind of went through some stuff last night just to sort of know a little bit more what I was talking about. Um, even though a lot of it was just revisiting the director I hadn't really heard of before Barbara something or other, and she hasn't really done anything else, um, on Nick or Pete and Pete or anywhere else. Whereas normally they were directed by people who were very much involved in the show, um, or who've gone on today and are doing a lot of big shows or movies today. So that might have something to do with it, but, um, um, yeah, it, some aspects weren't as, as great as I remembered it, but some were much, much better overall. It was a lot of fun and I definitely feel a little more cheered up than I did this morning when I had a bit of a cloudy morning. Well, I'm, I'm glad it did. Thank you. Um, and then just uh, as a uh, afterthought about Will McRobb and Chris Viscardi, I did. Is that their Viscardi? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, looking at their IMDb, they also more recently have been sort of Hollywood movie guys doing kids movies, Snow Day, which was supposed to be supposedly a, an extension of this show. Right. And then movies like Alvin and the Chipmunks. Yeah. And uh, and stuff like that. So I mean, they got they got to pay the bills. I mean, uh, they, you know. Oh, I'm not saying it as yeah. No, no, I'm just, I'm just I'm just no, 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 no. I I, I and it, it just they're they're tapped still um, as bringing quirky to something that's not quite quirky. I mean, obviously Alvin, you know, and I talked with them about that too. They're they're not disappointed with the way that Snow Day worked out, but they definitely feel like if if there was more left in from their original script. Um, you wouldn't have to tell people that it was an extension of the Pete and Pete show. So what was – yeah, what's the story with that? They wanted to do the show for Nickelodeon. Uh, I mean the movie Snow Day sort of as a Pete and Pete movie, but it it got stalled or whatever. And then by the time that Well, they- part of it too is one of the reasons that the show um, ended when it did was that Michael Morona – um, and uh, Allison Finelli, who are Ellen and uh, Big Pete, you could see it toward the end of season three. They're getting a lot older. They're not kids anymore. In fact, if from what I understand, if the series had continued, it probably would have focused much more. And you could see it a little bit on little Pete and his little band of friends. I mean, Allison and, and, and Michael were getting much older and the show couldn't have really continued the same way that it did. Allison would go on to become a, um, a, a, a children's doctor, actually. And Big Pete would kind of do his own thing. And, and act in a few other movies, and now he's actually an electrician in film. Really, really nice guy. Um, so they really couldn't have done the movie anyway, just because the characters were getting a little too old. Um, so it would have been more like Pete and Pete, though. You could see a little bit of that. There's a vestige of that in Snow Day with the relationship, the dynamic between um, the siblings, um, and you know, one wanting to grow, you know, keep the other from growing up, and that kind of thing, and and holding fast to one's childhood and, and kiddom, if you will. Um, so, but then, you know, what happens happens. And, and unfortunately snow day was being produced at that time when Nickelodeon was changing and in, in the opinion of many, um, went from the golden age, at least in quality and art to the golden age in economics. I mean, what they've done, um, since then, or at least what they did for a few years after that was really remarkable. They, they, they made Nickelodeon a huge brand. It went international and they got so much more money and merchandising and all this stuff. Look, that's a talent in itself. That's a big deal in itself. They created new studios and all these kinds of things. And that's great in itself. It just wasn't the same kind of DIY Andy Hardy. Hey, let's all, you know, let's go to the barn and make a show type of feel 
that it had in the beginning, um, you know, with shows like Pete and Pete and Sleet Your Shorts and Double Dare. Do you find when, you t- when you've talked to people who worked there then and still work there now, are there still a lot of people who still work at Nickelodeon from the old days? Not really. Um, um, a lot of them really did move on. I mean, and especially the main folks who were really creating the shows and the network. They were kind of the Johnny Appleseed of uh, cable television. A lot of people don't realize this, but Nickelodeon was, was – um, it actually predates MTV in its original incarnation and was quite honestly like the second or third cable channel of all time. So the people who were creating Nickelodeon um, made it work, made it happen, exploded it into a way where it was able to sort of go into this other phase that was taken taken over by people like Albie Hecht and Herb Scannell and later Seema Zargami um, and made it into the Nickelodeon is today. But those original people, Jeffrey Darby, Jerry Laybourne, Scott Webb, Fred and Alan, um, they would all kind of leave and go and create and help to create a lot of the other networks. Um, Jerry Laybourne, who was the president of Nick at this time that we're talking about and that Pete and Pete was on, um, you know, she did a little bit of Disney afterwards. And then she created the Oxygen Network. My Kling, my Kling offer, who was one of the developers of Double Dare and kind of helped to develop Nickelodeon, he named allegedly uh, Comedy Central and helped to develop Comedy Central. Linda Siminski from Nicktoons uh, would go on to Cartoon Network and help to develop Cartoon Network and now does a lot for PBS Kids. Uh, Jeffrey Darby would go on to the Weather Channel and um, uh, created Noggin, although that was still kind of Nick. And, you know, just the list goes on and on. I mean, these executives left to go and help to create. Even Fred and Alan went on to help ABC uh, One Morning or whatever it was, the the, the cartoons for, for that. Um, so, you know, they, they, they left. They went on to do other things very intentionally. These are people who need to be at the beginning of things. They need to be at the, the, the start um, because that's the challenge. That's the fun for them, even today, a lot of them. Uh, Mark Summers is an executive producer of shows now at Food Network and Travel Network and you can tell that you know he loves kind of the the act of creation and starting fresh um, so that's what these people need there's a couple people that are still around and that have done some stuff and do some stuff Will and Chris actually are back very recently I, I'm sorry I cannot remember the name of the cartoon but they're doing they're executive producing a new cartoon from the guys who do Bob's Burgers um, and I cannot remember it I watched an episode of it it was okay um, it wasn't great but it was okay um, and uh, so you know they're back um, and there are a few other people who kind of still freelance there and do some stuff there on and off. But, no, most people left and have kind of moved on. And have you watched uh, – you mentioned you just watched an episode, but what's your take on Nickelodeon right now? I can't really say. Um, I don't actually have a television. I haven't for a very long time. I know a lot of people say that, and then they'll start complaining about this last episode of Lost or whatever's on right now. I really have never seen a lot of those. TV Lost uh, ended series. about five years ago. Yeah, exactly. Right. So whatever it might be, that, that's just how out of that zeitgeist I am. Uh, and I don't, I don't brag about it. It's kind of bad that, I, that I'm not because it's sort of my business kind of, but I just I can't watch that garbage. And um, it hurts my eyes and my brain and um, my heart and my soul. But but uh, my ass. But um, no, uh, uh, I don't really. I, I I've watched an episode of that new Will McRob and Chris Viscardi thing um, because someone sent me a link to an episode and said that I should. And occasionally I'll watch clips of stuff on YouTube or I'll see stuff at like friends' houses or things like that. Um, but I really couldn't tell you what's on Nick now. And I think that that's really um, bespeaks much about what Nickelodeon is now. Again, um, I, I have friends there now and you know they've been pretty good about what I'm doing with the book and, and certain other things going on over there. Um, but at the end of the day, it's just not a network for 
adults as much as it was back then. I mean, it's always been a kid's network, but adults could watch it then. But there's really no adults that are going to sit and watch Dora the Explorer, iCarly. I don't even know if those are on anymore or whatever whatever I, it might be on now. I feel like Cartoon Network has sort of taken over that. I've watched some kids shows like uh, Regular Show and Adventure Time, which are definitely enjoyable for adults. So I feel like that still exists, but maybe just not in this form. You know what happened is um, Nickelodeon and MTV later on uh, really pioneered something that is a word that you would never really think of, but obviously makes sense as a portmanteau of sorts, which is they pioneered something called narrow casting as opposed to broadcasting. Narrow casting was revolutionary at this time because, oh my gosh, you're going to have an entire channel, an entire network just for kids, just for music, later on just for women or just for mysteries or just for history. My goodness, what are you talking about? Um, So that was a really big deal. And I think it's kind of gotten out of hand now. I think it's actually kind of a shame that there's so many millions of channels, especially with YouTube, it's it's infinite now, because you don't have the same kinds of... Again, that cultural miscegenation that you need where you had shows like Ren and Stimpy on Nickelodeon because there was nowhere else for it to go. So it had to be kind of the best of both worlds where it was somewhere for like children and for stoner adults, you know, like or, or, or intellectual college students. You know, everyone got something out of that show because it had to be because there was nowhere else for it to go. It had to be a certain kind of a way. And that went from the creators, to the executives to everything. Now, you know, if you put something on Nickelodeon, it has to be ex- exceedingly narrow casted it has to be very very much just for this one small age group of kids maybe this one diversity of kid uh, demographic of kids diversity wise age group whatever and you know if you want something that's the next notch up you go to this channel if you want something the next notch up you go to that channel and yeah if you want like some kind of adult thing or whatever you go to cartoon network and even cartoon network you know has now sort of uh segregated itself with things like adult swim where there's like a whole other section to the to the network and you know so i think that that's actually not such a great thing i think that it's um, pulled back and created a, a, a negation of sorts of innovation. Um, we were just talking about Robocop earlier. One of the reasons I love Robocop is I think it's a great example of something a film professor once told me, one of the few smart things a film professor ever told me, which is you got to give them popcorn and caviar. I think that movie does that very, very well. It's not just this silly shoot 'em up comic book movie. It also does have some heart and some feeling, character development. It has both. It is possible to do both. And they had to do that more in the golden age of Nickelodeon, not just on Nickelodeon, but on other networks too because there wasn't more places to go your show had to fit many of these different parameters and still be good and still be unique and still be interesting and god damn it they did it and now you can be a lot more lazy and just be like well it'll, it'll be on this network or i could put it on youtube or whatever it might be i think that you know infinite you know freedom without any kind of limitations can be extremely stultifying in itself it's the other side of the spectrum and to end this little screed you know it's it's aldous huxley versus George Orwell. You know, Orwell said there'd be censorship in the future. Huxley, I think, was right. He said there'd be super saturation of information. There'd be so much crap out there that you wouldn't be able to tell the difference between truth and fiction or quality and not quality. And I think that's where we are today. I think it's unfortunate. Boom. Take that to your back. Yeah. Baby. Bill put, Hicks. Put that in your pipe and smoke it, you motherfuckers. Mm. Um, well, I thank you so much. Before we go, um, we just watched Pete and Pete, uh, Pete's hard, uh, hard Day's Pete. If you had to, if you had to and you must, create a drinking game for people to watch this, Ooh, good one. this episode, too, oh. or, or the show as a whole, uh, what, would be, what would be some reasons to drink or what would make you drink? 
Um, on this episode, I think it would be every time uh, Hurley gets enraged. Uh, that was one of the things that really made me laugh, like, every time I saw it. Um, he's kind of, for those who haven't seen the episode or don't remember, he's kind of Pete's antagonist in this episode. Uh, Pete makes fun of him in the beginning about, or rather, Artie does, but Pete does by proxy by putting on the, on the Wart Radio about his hemorrhoids. And throughout the entire episode, Mr. Hurley is trying to uh, get Pete to fail and, like, calling in and baiting him and this kind of thing. But then Pete keeps uh, overcoming these little challenges and Hurley, um, you know, keeps getting like just more and more irate and just makes this like grumbly, growly noise. So I would say that would be good for that particular episode every time he does that. Um, The series as a whole... The only thing that keeps coming up in my head, <laughs> I, like, I feel like I, I could come up with something much better, but the thing that comes up in my head over and over again is every time Artie makes his kind of devious little laugh, his little giggle, his chortle that he makes, <laughs> I think would be good for a drinking game. That was a pretty good uh, imitation. And yeah. what, what, would they, what should people drink besides for uh, <laughs> slime? Uh, I like well, it, you know, maybe maybe green apple martinis because it could be slime juice. But me personally, one on one wild turkey. So you know, go with it. That's what that's what my roommate and I would imbibe along with some other things that weren't drinks while we were uh, watching Pete and Pete. And uh, you know, it goes really well. Do do you know if if, if uh, you're not operating heavy machinery or driving or a child, um, whiskey goes very well with Pete and Pete. So the for anybody who's going to watch this episode, drink some, smoke some, enjoy yourself. Yeah, That's or other things too. I mean, it's it's all it's all up to you. As long Hills, as- uppers, downers. <laughs> uh, a, look, as Hunter would say, I'm not advocating uh, drug use. It's always worked for me. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, be be cautious, kids. Be good. Don't uh, don't uh, run over your baby sister with your car. Um, don't get you know. too absurd in uh, or too real either. Or where it becomes real. absurd. So absurd it becomes real, or so real it becomes absurd. Exactly. So uh, thank you so much, uh, Matt. And uh, people can find the book Slimed anywhere. People can find the book Slimed anywhere. Slimed in oral history, Nickelodeon's golden age. Um, and uh, just real quick, too, a nice little added bonus. Hunter S. Thompson, speaking of throughout, was never actually on Pete and Pete. It's just a myth, an urban myth, um, that he was on the New York uh, the New Year's episode. And I think it actually is in the credits that there's a Hunter Thompson or something to that effect. But he was never actually uh, on the show. That never actually happened. So if you're thinking it, you're wrong. You're very wrong. And, and, and yeah, you, you, get, you get a C-. And that rumor is finally put to rest right here. Right here, right now. Um, so thanks so much, Matt. Thank you. I'd like to thank my guest, Matthew Clickstein, for dropping by, watching Pete and Pete, uh, talking about it, uh, going into length about the show, Nickelodeon, and all that jazz. Uh, if you're a fan of the podcast, you can follow me on Twitter at Craig Rowan. C-R-A-G-R-O-W-I-N. You can become a fan on uh, Facebook. Uh, It's that episode podcast. You can tell a friend about the show. You can tell uh, an enemy. You can email a random uh, email account and tell them about the show if you want to. Whatever. Either way, uh, thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. Have a great night and an early manana. Adios, amigos. (laughs) 